From the studios of WHUP-LP in Hillsboro, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the wait is up Fight, Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. It is an important show and a bittersweet one because I have to announce what a lot of y'all already know. Betsy O'Donovan and I are moving from Durham, North Carolina. That's right. The center of the known world is moving from Durham, North Carolina to Bellingham, Washington, from one ham to another. And so this is actually the second to last show that I will be doing in the WHUP-FM studios. We're going to have one more show with Wes Claytor from Gracie Raleigh talking about Tap Cancer Out. We're going to do that next weekend. Today, we're going to talk with Pedro Sauer, Black Belt, Mark Cooper. One of the most well-respected instructors and practitioners of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in North Carolina. So we're lucky to close it out on a really excellent local note. Now, some of the most common questions that we've been getting are answered in a post on the website at dirtywhitebelt.com, which you can go and check out. And the big one that we're getting is, are you going to continue to talk about jiu-jitsu in North Carolina and beyond? And the answer is absolutely yes. We're going to go down to a once-every-two-week schedule for a while while we move. We have a couple of great shows that I've pre-recorded that I can't wait to bring to you. One with legendary uh, athlete Hanette Stack, who is one of the top three uh, women jiu-jitsu competitors of all time, in my estimation, and just one of the best people I've met in jiu-jitsu. And another with Jose Tufi Kairos, who is a jiu-jitsu historian. We might actually break that out into two different shows because it's so long with the stuff is gold, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So while we move across the country in the month of May, uh, we're going to still have content coming out to you. You're still going to have really interesting shows. We're going to go down to once every two weeks for a little while and then get back on the, on the train. Um, we will still continue to talk about North Carolina jiu-jitsu and jiu-jitsu in the southeast. Still have a lot of connections here. It's still home. And we will still continue to keep in touch with y'all. Um, but the show is also going to expand, and we're going to cover a lot more national and international jiu-jitsu news than we have before. And so we are excited about this transition. It's always bittersweet to leave a place that you love, uh, and you know, and we love Durham. If you have any questions, always hit me up. We have a, a fancy... Uh, a fancy new email, jeff at dirtywhitebelt.com. Feel free to post questions on our Facebook page, which is Cage Side Radio. Uh, feel free to um, post on our Twitter, which is DWB Radio, and on our Instagram, which is at Dirty White Belt. Yeah, so that's the news. Um, we will have lots more to share with you over the coming months. In the meantime, uh, while we're waiting for Mark to call, I want to tell you about some upcoming tournament events. The most important thing coming up, Toro Cup 9, which is April 14th at Toro BJJ World Headquarters. As you all probably know, it is a benefit for Hubao Karaoke and his medical expenses. Um, So 50% of the revenue is going to go straight to Hubao Karaoke's medical expenses. There are 25 matches on this card. That is bonkers. And a lot of those matches are going to be incredible. And I will have the good fortune, along with my friend Maximiliano Ulloa York, to be commentating some of the matches along with uh, some some special guests. I know Lourdes is going to hop on commentary with me for a while, Dave Porter. And so we're going to video tape all those matches and bring them to you on our fancy Dirty White Belt uh, YouTube channel, which you can get to at youtube.com slash Dirty White Belt. Um, but if you are around in the area, you should absolutely come in person. Uh, please, please, please do show up at Cageside World Headquarters at 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, in order to, to support Toro Cup. Some of the, so there are some matches that I am extremely excited to see. Uh, Josh Murdoch is going to take on Daniel Frank in the Gi for the Toro Lightweight Championship belt. Um, Glayton Mello from Elevate MMA, a really tough black belt that beats me up all the time, is going to... Uh, is going to take on Dave Porter, uh, which is a tremendous match that I can't wait to see, and much, much more. Hey, Lourdes. Hey. What's your favorite tournament organization in jiu-jitsu? Um, that's an easy one. It would have to be U.S. Grappling. And actually, I love them so much that I'm going to go to their ref training. 
I know that they put on a lot of ref trainings because they're serious about the competitor experience. I've actually gone to two of the ref trainings myself because I wanted to be really sure that I was a decent ref. Yeah, I really like the way that they do the ref training. One, you can go to the ref training and you, you can get your training done, but then they even kind of mentor you at one of the events, and so you um, you get to practice doing your refing during real matches, and um, I really like that. U.S. Grappling is run by grapplers for grapplers. You can compete in the new year. Register early to get a break on price at usgrappling.com. So Mark Kukro, black belt under Pedro Sauer, I've always wanted to talk to you. You and I have gotten to train together just once or twice, but I've always admired your your approach to jiu-jitsu, your technical ability, the way that you run your academy, and the way that you represent one of the most well-respected um, uh, jiu-jitsu practitioners ever, Pedro Sauer. I've always wanted to have you on the show, so thanks for making the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so maybe you can get started. For the listeners who aren't familiar with you, talk to us a little bit about how you got started in jiu-jitsu. I know you've trained in many martial arts, which we'll get into over the course of the interview, but what inspired you to get started in jiu-jitsu, and when did you start training? Okay, so I started training, I think it was 1992. I was at Fort Bragg, and once a week, um, I just got back from the Gulf, and once a week we were allowed for our physical training, our PT to go and either learn something different or just kind of go and train on our own. And one of the guys I trained with, his name was Willie O'Dell, and he was a wrestler and a catch wrestler. <clears throat> and uh, he was from West Virginia, I believe. And so we would grapple, and I was like, what in the world is this guy doing? And hey, this is awesome. And so um, he always called me little man. He's like, hey, little man, let's go train. And um, so we would train, and he started to teach me some some catch wrestling. And then when I moved to Charlotte, um, not long after, I got a flyer on my car. And uh, I was like, huh, Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, so let me go check it out. And um, so I started training in that, and I was blown away. And of course, everybody knows who Bruce Lee is. Um, But I was surprised to find so much striking in it. And then uh, that led to the Filipino martial arts. And then I didn't realize at the time that uh, Larry Hartzell left a big presence here. And he's one of Bruce Lee's, um, you know, friends. He's in a, he was a tremendous, tremendously uh, well-respected uh, catch wrestler, wrestler. He was a sheriff. And so a lot of his students were still here in the area. And so I started training with them. And uh, so we did Filipino martial arts, Muay Thai, um, some Japanese jiu-jitsu, and... Um, that was probably in like 1993 or four. And there wasn't very many people uh, in the area, but considering what was available at the time, this was kind of like a really good place to train for that. And there was a place on Independence Boulevard. It was like a a 24 hour gym. And uh, there was a bunch of professional wrestlers there. And a lot of times they would bring in old school catch wrestlers from the mountains and from Virginia and so we would go up there and train. <clears throat> and, man, it was like a lion's den training with those guys. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And um, so I started to really just take a liking to grappling. And then, um, of course, the UFC came to town. And uh, at the time, I was like, man, I don't understand how this guy is beating everybody. And it would be Hoist, right, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. And um, then... I had started training and I wanted to look for a jujitsu, but I kept hearing about his brother Hickson. And, uh, I think it was an interview and I don't remember the specific timing, but he said, if you think I'm good, you should see my brother Hickson. He's 10 times better than I am. And so I started to look for Brazilian Gracie jujitsu and for work, I would travel. And so I was in Atlanta and I saw this, um, logo that looked like, um, the Florida Gators, but it said Brazilian jujitsu. And, you know, and looking back now, it's hard to imagine that no one knew who he was, but it was Jacare. And so I went in there and I trained, and then I would travel back and forth um, to Atlanta, and then slowly people started to come in the area and train. And uh, there was a big event at the Grady Cole Center. Hickson did a camp, and he was good friends with Erwin Carmichael. And I've known Erwin Carmichael for many years uh, because we would train, we would do 
we'd, we'd go to the firehouse and the police station and we'd grapple and he'd come to our academy and we'd go to his. And um, so it, it was really, it's kind of, I still can't even believe it happened. <clears throat> so we're training and um, Ethan goes, okay, we're going to roll. And um, at that time there was a guy in the crowd. He was a big guy wearing a singlet, I'd say at least 250 pounds. And uh, he said, and I remember Hickson said, you're going to get a guillotine, a Kimura, or a hip sweep. So this guy was like, that's not going to work on me. And the place got kind of like awkwardly quiet because of the way he said it. And so Hickson goes, okay, come up here, my friend. And uh, he goes, do what you want. And Hickson swept the guy and choked him. And then he just pushed him over, and we continued the seminar. <laughs> and the whole place was quiet. And I was like, wow, this is, I can't believe that just happened. And he was so calm and cool about it. <clears throat> So then he goes, okay, we're going to roll. And it was him, Kim, I forget who the brown belt was, and he had somebody else with him. So they started calling people out of the crowd. And uh, he goes, you, come with me. And I was like, okay, man, I'm getting to train with Hicks and Gracie. Like, this is my first legitimate, like, jujitsu experience outside of just a class. So he goes, okay, man, I'm going to choke you with my right hand. And he holds up his right hand, and he goes, do whatever you want. So he's playing with me and he lets me take his back and he lets me move around and he's letting me scoot around on the bottom and cross-eyed. And he goes, okay, man, you ready? And then all I knew was I was on my back and he choked me and that was it. And I was hooked on jujitsu ever since then. And so that was a great experience. And um, then as jujitsu started to come to the area, um, I had to travel a little bit less, but I still really traveled a lot until about, mm, maybe 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, um, when I um, met Master Sauer and started training with him. And so that's pretty much how I got into it in a short story. Well, that's a, I'm sure that we could tease out any number one of those threads because there are a lot of fascinating details about there. Everybody wants to hear about training with Hickson, and I'd love to hear some about the professional wrestlers, which we'll get into maybe later. But you, you left okay. off, <clears throat> yeah. But you, you left off talking about Master Pedro Sauer, and so I'm curious. And Dennis Weisman, someone who's known you for a, Dennis Weisman, someone who's lo- known you for a lot of years, sent some questions. Yeah. We were both curious about how you decided that Pedro Sauer was the right affiliation for you. Okay, so one of the most important things for me, and outside of jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu, I'm a business consultant, and I've been for, this is my 12th, going on my 13th year. So whenever I travel, <clears throat> you get to kind of see the culture, not see, you see and experience and feel and hear the academy culture. And I like to go into a place that's very positive, very encouraging, but when it comes to jujitsu, very technical because I'm only five seven and 155 pounds, and so you know I can still do jujitsu, of course, but there's a difference, you know, between someone that's 155 pounds, 255 pounds doing jujitsu, and I personally find that when you're very technical of jujitsu and you understand how the the body mechanics work. Uh, then it can really take your jujitsu a lot further and you can develop a much higher sense of calm and poise. And so everybody I knew was like, man, I just know you, you should talk to this guy, Pedro Sauer. And at the time I didn't know who he was really, you know, I heard his name a couple of times and um, some of my friends went and trained with him and they were like, you have got to train with this guy. So honestly, I don't even know how I met him the first time. I think I went to Atlanta and um, it was at a camp, and I just met him, and I, he introduced himself, and I introduced myself, and um, I just listened to him. And within two minutes, I was like, this guy is amazing. And the way he breaks down information and articulates the points and the details, I was like, I got to train with this guy. And so I started talking to him and a guy named Mike Horahan, who now runs the association, and um, I said, look, I want to start. All, if you want me to start all over, I'll start all over, whatever you want me to do. But I want to train with you. I want to learn from you. And I want to um, be an affiliate. And it's really the best thing I've ever done is to train with him and, and open an academy under his association. And um, then throughout the years, you know, you just get to know people the more you see them. And um, so that started leading me into doing working on projects and working and doing things for the association to help them organize, you know, the curriculum and the information. And there's a few of us 
that, you know, really got involved with it. And uh, we've made a lot of really nice changes to help structure everything and just get everything across the board a little more consistent. And, um, you know, now I've gone to Brazil with them a few times. And, uh, you know, I mean, how awesome is it that you can go to Brazil, stay at his house, and then train with him and all, and go to a different academy every night and train with him six hours a day? It's just amazing. So I'm really, I consider myself very fortunate to have found him and to be one of his students. What do you think the single most important thing Pedro Sauer has taught you is, if you had to identify one thing? So the one, I'd say the one thing. Um, the one thing I would say really is just how to relax. And I know that, you know, seems like a, a simple thing to say, but it comes from a conversation that he gave at a seminar, and then we talked about it a little bit later, and that is that never think that you're rolling a human being. Just understand that you're rolling a skeleton that's like inside of a human being because everybody's joints, they all bend the same way pretty much. I mean, there's variables, but um, when you put yourself in, you understand the skeleton and you put yourself in bad positions over and over, you begin to know what to do better, more calmly, and you become more poised. And so I think for a year, I got every person I know in my academy and my friends that come in and even some people I haven't met, I said, pull me down in the mount, don't let me out for I mean, absolutely don't let me out of them out. And so I struggled. And then three months later, I got out a third of half the time. Six months later, I got out most of the time. A year later, now it's a little harder, you know, for someone to hold me in the mount. So I would start to isolate things. But once I understood how the skeleton worked, I didn't look at it as me rolling a person as much as me just rolling um, on a very specific structurally leveraged base approach to jujitsu and then that's the human skeleton and then everything else from there develops the poise and the calmness the fluidity and the finesse and so i think that is kind of a couple things rolled in one but that's like the that encompasses the essence i think of what i've gained most from him Obviously, this is a jiu-jitsu podcast, and we'll return to that martial art in a minute, but I would be remiss as a fan of old-school wrestling, particularly Southern wrestling, if I didn't ask you about some of the professional wrestlers that you used to train with, and it, would it be anybody that we would know? Um, I don't think the, the kind of the bigger names would really be known, um, because it was like mostly the guys up and coming that would be there. Like um, Ricky Steamboat had a gym, and a lot of them, so that was here in Charlotte, and some of the guys would go, like Fernando Salvador, I've known him forever. We've been friends for, I don't even know how long, 20-something years. And he would, he worked there, he would go up there. Even um, when Hoist came to town to fight, he hit, you know those guys went there, and um, they would be just kind of like guys that were trying to become professional wrestlers. And then once in a while, some of the pros would come in. You know, like, of course, you know, Steamboat, Flair, the, there was one guy... I trained with the most called the Italian Stallion, and he used to hand out these little, like, beef jerkies. He had his own kind of um, endorsements, and they were just characters, man, and they were fun. And you could see the difference between them, like, wrestling for work, basically, and then wrestling for real. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And then the catch wrestlers would come down from the mountains and during this time, too, when I was still really into catch wrestling, I, I didn't even put a gi on, really, until maybe 15 years ago. And, well, I did, but not as much. Um, they would come down from the mountains. The guys would come down from, I think it was Mechanicsville, Virginia. And, man, we would just, you know, just have some great sessions. And um, they were all really cool about it. If you're, you know, like anybody, if you're nice to them and you're cool, they're going to be nice to you. They're going to be cool with you. They're going to train. And... Um, I'm trying to really think back to some of the other names, but uh, those are a few of the guys that we would see there. That segues nicely into something I did want to ask you about, which is how to be, you know, you travel a lot for work, obviously, and you've, mm -hmm. you've trained with a number of different people. How do you be a good guest in an academy? That's a, that's a topic that I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in. What do you think the steps are if you're visiting somebody's academy or if you're moving to a new area and you, you, you don't want to be rude, you want to be polite and respectful? What are some of the best ways that you can do to ingratiate yourself to folks that you're meeting for the first time? Okay, so typically, you know, now that I've traveled for years, I kind of have, like, the main spots I go to. Colorado is one of them, Texas, Michigan. I'll usually just send someone a message on Facebook, and I'll be like, hey, my name's Mark Kukro. You know, I'm coming to town for business. I'd love to come in. I'm trying to find a great place to train. 
you know, is it okay if I stop in your academy? And since I, you know, it's on Facebook, they pull up your profile. So generally I can tell by the tone of the email, uh, you know, hey, man, we'd love to have you come on in. And then, uh, you know, I'll just kind of go through it. So always uh, let the person know ahead of time. What I recommend you do not do is just pop in and be like, hey, what's up? I'm here at train because people will be surprised to see you. And even if it's a pleasant surprise, people usually don't respond to a surprise as well as notice. So I'll just let them know and pretty much always I have a good experience. Um, there's a few places I go to in Denver, there, you know, and there's like a few places I'll go to each time, Virginia Beach, um, you know, Texas, Michigan. And I think the most important thing is if you walk in and you have some sense of humility and respect and you're, and you're like, hey, listen, I just want to train, you know, most often people will be very gracious and they'll say, hey, come on in. Oh, you're a black belt. Oh, my goodness. Come on in, man. You know, and uh, they'll and introduce me. And then I'd say about half the time, someone will say, hey, would you like to show something, you know, since you're in town? And um, I really like that when people do that, too, because it shows that they're they're more welcoming than tolerating your presence, if that makes sense. Makes perfect so, sense. To um, me. Yeah, I, I think. And then, of course, you know, I wouldn't. When I roll in other academies for the first time, too, I just go easy. I'm like, hey, look, man, you know, whatever you want to do. I don't know how you guys roll. Some of them are like, man, we're going to get at it. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I just came to train. Let's just, you know, see how it goes. Most people are cool. A couple of times, the guys will try to take your head off, but, um, you know, and that's it. And then based on the, the first grip, just the minute they grab my collar or sleeve, I can tell the energy. And um, if I roll with a lower belt, I'll usually just be like, hey, listen, man, whatever energy you give me, I'm going to give you. You know, let's just have a good time and do some jiu-jitsu. Uh, I'm not going to try to hurt you. And usually people will either be responsive and appreciative or defensive about it. Um, I usually find it's like, oh, it's cool. We'll go. And then sometimes they're like, yeah, whatever. Um, because they want like a title shot as opposed to just a good role. But um, most people are, are really good. Um, I do remember going to one place, and I won't give away the name because it's a small community, but um, one of the, the head instructors, he goes, hey, everyone, this is Mark Cook He's a Pedro Sauer black belt. And he waves his hand across the room, like with his palm open from side to side. And he goes, if any of you kind of waving everyone over to the side of the academy, wants to roll him, line up over there. And I think 30 people got in a line against the wall. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't, I don't know if I can roll 30 people, man, but I'll roll until I can't go anymore. And uh, it's just interesting to see how the different, you know, academies welcome you and react to your presence. If you like watching amazing jiu-jitsu matches and supporting people in your community, you need to go to Toro Cup 9 on April 14th at the Cageside Warehouse, 124 Ladder Road in Durham, North Carolina. You need to go out there because it's going to support Hubao Karaoke's medical fund. The local black belt had a stroke this year and we're raising money to help support his recovery. Additionally, it's James Boomer Hogaboom's birthday that day. And if you know Boomer, the owner of Cageside MMA and one of the brains behind Toro BJJ, does a lot to support the local scene. So get out here and have Boomer have a good birthday as well. That's Toro Cup 9, April 14th at the Cageside Warehouse, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina. And if you want to match on the card, contact John Bagels Telford. Yeah, that is interesting. And I imagine that someone that traveled as much as you do would have some stories about that. Do you usually seek out a Pedro Sauer affiliate or it, it, or is it... A, or, or do you care about that? Is it, or, or is it the kind of thing where you're like, you know, I train with Pedro Sauer guys all the time. Maybe I'll seek out another affiliation. Yeah, I do both, you know. And, like, for me, and this is one of the things I love about Master Sauer, is he's like, look, man, go train in other places. You know, you have your home, go travel. And so if I go to a city and I know someone and say I'm friends with them and I'm going to be there for one day, I'll probably go to their place. If I'm going to be there and I'm like, well, I just saw you guys a couple months ago, I'm going to go try a new place. And I try new places all the time. And um, because I like to be exposed to different jujitsu, different grappling. Um, and, you know, everybody, even though I've been training for 20-something years, I learned every single time. You know, I go somewhere, someone will do something a little different, and I maybe I have to go, well, I've seen that. Okay, oh, wait a minute. I didn't see that detail again. Do that again. Or um, So I pick up, you know, things 
I feel like it's a very wise thing to do, to be open-minded, to learning from other people, uh, even when they're lower rank. I, I don't like how some people disregard lower rank uh, students as someone that they can't learn from. Um, now, sometimes you have to be patient with what they, with someone that has just started is, is trying to teach you or show you because they don't have a lot of experience. But sometimes them not having experience is exactly how you figure out something new or highlight a detail that you never really put much merit into before. So I like to, tra- to train pretty much uh, with everyone. And I have a rule, you know, a simple rule. If I walk into the place and the vibe is good, I'm going to train. And uh, that's really what it comes down to. You can tell within 10 seconds whether how welcome you are at any business, not just an academy, 10 to 30 seconds. So, uh, and then I just train, and I always bring a geek. Mm-hmm. So how many Pedro Sauer affiliates were there in North Carolina when you started training with Master Sauer, and how many are there now? I get the sense that the association has grown a bunch. Is that your sense as well? It has grown. So I was the first one, and... Um, you know, just with a couple of people starting in the grass and in the garage and then a small place. This is my fourth location, basically in 12, 13 years around there. Um, and now we have seven. So we've really grown. And um, it's nice to see the growth of really good, solid, solid fundamental jujitsu. And um, I'm very proud to see everybody grow and do so well. And now we're up to. I think well, I have like 200 students. Wow. They probably have one to two, you know, like a one to 200. The place in Hickory has 300. So I think we're up around 700 students in the association on our team in the Carolinas now, which is really nice to see. Yeah, that's super exciting. And, you know, as, yeah. some, as somebody that's gone through a bunch of locations, you must have thoughts on, like, how, so obviously you've created a really welcoming environment for your students. And I'm wondering, how do yeah. you go about creating that welcome environment so people can feel safe and comfortable and create that good vibe that you talked about for training? How do you do that as an instructor? Okay. Well, so I'm glad you asked that. And there's several things to consider. And I think, you know, you'll hear these phrases a lot like, well, if you're a black belt in jiu-jitsu, you should have a black belt in business. And it's the same kind of development because your mindset is as important as your skill set. So if you just invest in your skill set, you could be a great black belt, but you're not really good at running a business. You're not really good at teaching. You might not be really good at creating an environment where people come in and they feel welcome. And so there's a few things to consider, and you'll hear this a lot. And, um, you know, I've done several uh, videos on this in some of the BJJ business groups. But um, the first thing is when somebody walks in the door, you literally have, and there's a lot of research that shows you know this, and there's variables in which report you read. But basically you have less than 10 seconds before someone goes, okay, they noticed me, I feel welcome. And then the next question is, you know, between 10 and 30 seconds, do I feel comfortable And then next, when they look around, it's, do I feel safe, right? So if someone feels like they're recognized, they're welcomed, they are comfortable, then they feel safe, then they'll train. And for the new person, you know, we've been training jujitsu so long. The new person has no idea. They don't even know what a tap is. And all they do is they come in and they look at us rolling around and throwing each other and choking each other. And they're like, oh, my goodness. So if you can bring a sense of calm to the initial visit, and let, make sure people know that they're going to leave the academy safe and with all their joints intact, but they're going to have a lot of fun doing it. They're probably going to come back. Um, I'm 100% against having somebody with no experience roll within the first 10 classes. I think if you've never trained, there's no way you should roll uh, at least for 10 classes because you don't even really understand how to tap out what the what the movements are. There's, you haven't even developed gross motor movements yet. So I think that's really important. Um, and then now they know that they're going to be safe, and then you can get them into isolated positions, and then you can add submissions, and they go, okay, now I know how to bridge, I know how to shrimp, trap and bridge, I know how to protect my neck, I know to tap the person if I can, if not tap the floor, and if I can't tap any of those, they tap. And if I can't do any of those three, they're not going to break my arm and say you should have tapped. They're going to let go and say, How, why didn't you tap? So I think that's a really important distinction between tear it off 
take it home. This is how it is. Because the people need to assimilate into the, the mental toughness that jujitsu requires. You can't just like thrust them into it and expect them to react appropriately. And, um, you know, that's really what I'm looking for in, in an academy is if I had to send my kids to go train, say at your academy or someone else's, I want to know that they're going to come home safe and their training partners understand that they're on the same team. And while you can train hard, it should be technical and tough. It shouldn't be tough with no technical ability, and it shouldn't be tough with disregard for your opponent. It should be tough, technical, with the utmost respect for your training partner. Because if you injure your training partners, that might be the person or the two or three people that help you get to a big event, and now you just injured them because you you didn't want to let go. I think those are all excellent points, and I love the turn of phrase that people have. New people have to assimilate into the mental toughness that jujitsu requires. That you don't walk in knowing exactly what this art is going to require of you. Otherwise, why would you? Why would you walk in? And you know, especially for those of us that and most of the people listening to this podcast are obviously crazy about jujitsu, right? And we're yeah. immersed yeah. into it, and so. And especially as jujitsu grows, it's hard. It's easy to forget. Like, hey, new people don't know how to tap all the time. You know, maybe they don't know what the UFC is. Maybe they didn't get into this having ever seen this, and maybe they don't know how to keep themselves safe. And so, I think that's a a really great thing for instructors and students alike to keep in mind. And and on that note, um, I was wondering if you could give us some advice on being an instructor as well as being a student. You know, because you're you're someone that obviously has been a student of Master Sowers for a long time and has also taught for a long time. What do you think the most yeah. important things to know are about about those particular aspects of the art? So, I think the most important thing to know right away is you are far more of an example than you realize. To the point where if an instructor comes in and the students respect him or her, they're going to emulate those behaviors, that attitude, the disposition, the vocabulary. They're going to really take away a lot more than you realize. Like if you were, I don't know, a specific type of team T-shirt, the kids and students probably want to buy those. You know, So you're going to be an influence on them outside of the academy. But from a teaching perspective, you have to know the difference between teaching children and adults, which is completely different, although sometimes as adults we're big kids. <laughs> you know, we have, like to have fun just like everybody else. But you have to really understand the approach. You should not teach young children for more than 45 minutes until they're around 10 to 12 years old, and then you can pick it up, and then you can really get physical and really start having, um, you know, demanding training sessions. Um, up until that point, they just have to learn how to move, and it should be really fun, and they should tell their mom and dad, I can't wait to go to jiu-jitsu. It's so much fun. And then as you assimilate into the mental toughness of jiu-jitsu, you're like, all right, now I want to I get up and go. But that shouldn't be every class. So I would say, number one, you are much more of an example than you think. Two, know the difference between teaching adults and teaching children. Three, make sure that you're as professional and as articulate as possible and, and while you're being you, right? So you and I are different people. We may teach very technical classes, but our personality should come out. But you have to be very respectful to people. Um, and whenever you're making a correction, you could follow the praise, suggest praise. You could follow the praise, correct praise kind of format. Look, you got everything up to this point. This is really good. This is perfect. This is awesome. This one thing we need to fix instead of going, nope, that's not it. Move over. And um, although we do jujitsu, sometimes you have to kind of teach with your hands in your pockets. And the more you learn to ask questions and guide and correct and encourage, the more the students are going to want to do it. Um, I am a big advocate of looking professional too. And that doesn't mean that you have to look a certain way, but if you're teaching class, you should have a clean gi on. And I think it shouldn't be like different colors. It should be a solid white, blue, black, e, whatever. But um, it's the equivalent of a business suit, except on the mats, in my opinion. So it shouldn't look ratty and it shouldn't look beat up. And if a student or their parents come in, as soon as they walk in the door and they look around the room, they should go, I know who the instructor is. Because you're going to have a nonverbal presence, a verbal presence, and you're going to have the image of someone that's professional. And um, I think those are very overlooked things, um, especially, you know, when it comes to teaching kids. I 
really, I'm, I don't think any, any instructor should use profanity on the mat when you're teaching kids. Um, adults, you know, you can do whatever you want. I can't tell you, I can't tell anyone how they should run their business. I could advise, you know, but um, I wouldn't use any profanity and I would, I would stop the tough guy talks on the mat, like how great I am, how tough I am. Did I tell you who I tapped out? And the, sometimes you'll see instructors, they want to, so here's kind of a, a, a phrase I like is never criticize someone else and compliment yourself in the same conversation or sentence. So um, I would just constantly be positive and upbeat. And um, I'd like to share something, if you don't mind, with one of the kids that we teach. Um, you got well over 100 kids. And believe it or not, you know, um, the kids don't really want to come to learn jujitsu in the beginning. The, the parents bring them in and they just want their, they want good kids. They want good habits. They don't want their kids to get picked on. And if they do, they want them to know what to do. And not all jujitsu takes place like on the mat or, you know, if they're picked on the bus, picked on, on the bus, what jujitsu are they going to use? So you have to teach them jujitsu that's really relevant. But the habit formation that instructors develop in kids is very important. And every Saturday we have all the little kids nine years old and down they line up and all i do is ask them who made their bed today and raise your hand and if you made it by yourself and if i don't think so by their body language you know they give put like the t-rex hand up and they have a short hand raise raise your hand if you made it you get some we have this little box full of just toys and from they're from the dollar store but man let me tell you that thing is the most successful thing that we have ever done to get kids to make their beds and um you know we'll talk about little things like healthy food and you know um what does it say to a parent if you teach their kids and all of a sudden they start making their bed every day and they don't complain at the dinner table and they stand up for themselves and they do their homework and they can't wait to bring their report card to you so i think those are little uh little things that are often overlooked and they're seemingly insignificant but they they mean a great deal to the parent so I, i don't know if that helps but I think as an instructor, we have to understand all of those aspects. So, you know, how to teach, how to present ourselves, how to speak to people. Um, and the nonverbal image that we give is actually greater than the verbal image um, when people come in. So I think those are important. I want to tell you about the customer service I recently got from Cageside Fight Company. I really needed custom rash guards and fight shorts in time to get Junio Casio on the Eddie Bravo Invitational card so that he could look fresh. Not only did Boomer from Cageside personally deliver all of the stuff that I needed, he got it in a timely fashion at a great price. This is what I've come to expect from Cageside Fight Company. So if you want the best in fight gear from a family-owned business that does a lot for the local community, go to cageside.com and support the folks that support us. I think that's really useful, and it's always been funny to me how jiu-jitsu practitioners who recognize the impact of minute details while rolling, like, well, you put your hand here instead of here, and it makes a huge difference, uh, sometimes don't recognize the importance of details in other aspects of life, like, as you say, wearing a clean gi, wearing, wearing a non-mismatched gi, and, and certainly that sends a message, so I think that's useful. On the flip side of that, one thing that I always like to ask, I know a lot of blue belts listen to the show, and we threw out some messages uh, to people for, for if they had questions for you. And I always ask sure. people what advice you might have for blue belts who are trying to get to that next level. And we got one message where a person asked specifically, if I'm trying to develop my own unique personal style of jujitsu, like if I'm trying to develop mm-hmm. a unique style, what kind of advice do you have? So, you know, not for rank beginners, but for folks that have achieved a certain level. Okay, so anytime someone's a blue belt, you know, to me, like a, a blue belt is such an important belt. They're all important, but you know, this is the first achievement. So if you, if ever, like, say you run a race and you go, okay, I'm done. Well, you just crossed the finish line, but if you look in the back of the finished ribbon, it says start line for the next stage. And so people feel this sense of accomplishment, and they don't really know how to start working towards the next goal because they just achieved one. So the first thing I would say is give yourself a break. I mean, you just achieved a blue belt. It took one to two to three years, and in some cases longer, to get that belt. And it is an accomplishment. Take a day or two to celebrate and get right back to training. And um, it's just, when you look back, it's going to be something that you're going to be like, oh, I remember that. 
instead of right now where you're like, this is this is what what I did, this is what I who, what I am and who I am and what I've achieved. And if you look at yourself as a human being, you have to figure out, okay, am I tall, skinny, short, wide, stocky? Like if you're if you have very tall, if you're tall and skinny and you have really long legs, you're probably going to have a good guard. If you're a little, if you're shorter, you're probably going to float around, transitions, live in the corners, stay a little bit more to like north and south or on the side. Um, if you're a big person, you're probably not. You might. I mean, these are just generalizations, and I don't like to be overly general. But if you're a big person, you're probably not going to do a lot of guard work. You might do a lot of cross side, um, north and south. If you're smaller, you're probably going to work under the person a little bit more. So you have to kind of figure out like what feels natural to you as a practitioner and then work on that one thing. And so like, you know, my daughter, I'll give you an example. She's 14. She's all legs. So she has a really good guard. She's good at triangles, but if she, her legs are so long that if someone shorter than her gets her in cross-eyed, the bone, her femur is so long that she has a difficult time getting her knee in to recover guard. Mm. So you have to figure out kind of how you're built because it'll influence your game but I think a big part of what most blue belts miss is experimentation. And um, I think you have to have structured learning and then exploratory learning. So like if you have an open mat, just go out and play and flow and train with everyone of every different size. And you're going to start to figure out your tendencies. But for example, when is the last time you asked yourself, I wonder what my mental tendencies are. I wonder what my behavioral tendencies are. I wonder what my emotional tendencies are. In other words, like, what do I, what am I unaware of about myself? And when you have a greater awareness of self, it's easier to really look at things. And if you, it could be as simple as, okay, what do I keep getting stuck in? I would start working on that and then ask why. And if you ask why five times, you'll find out the truth or you'll find out that you have no idea and start really troubleshooting yourself. And uh, I'd recommend notebooks too. I can't recommend it enough. If you have a notebook, and you take notes, you're going to start to see your own kind of line of thinking and your approach to things, which is, do you know your own tendencies? And then you're going to say, okay, I wonder why I've never even done this. I wasn't even aware that I haven't done this because you're, you didn't chart your progress. But if you chart your progress, uh, I think it'll go a really long way. And as a blue belt, basically, white's a blue, static learning. Defense, you should be like, um, the analogy I like to use is, is if you've ever gone fishing and you pull a fish in the bottom of the boat and it's flipping around the bottom of the boat and you try to pick it up with one hand, it's remarkably difficult. You should be like that fish on the bottom of the boat when anyone tries to hold you down. It's like almost impossible. Um, when you go from blue to purple, it's now all about transitions, sweeps, combinations, and you start to – that's when you really start to define your game. So there's a big exploratory component between blue and purple, but that's really where you start sweeping people and putting things together. And as an instructor, if I roll a blue belt and they just got the blue belt, well, they're a brand new blue belt. Their base is probably still a little off. They did great on the test, but you can tell the difference between a blue belt with no stripes and a blue belt with four stripes. And um, as you move towards purple, you just have to start putting things together. And I think you'll start to identify that, especially if you take notes and you assess your own line of thinking. So I hope that helps, but that's what I would recommend. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And to elevate one part of that, I can't say enough about how valuable I think my notebooks have been. A lot of times, you know, when I was a no as you mentioned, a no-stripe blue belt is really different than a four-stripe blue belt. And I learned some things and took notes on them when I was a no-stripe blue belt that I utterly didn't understand. Went back to them two years later and said, oh, and then you start yeah. to put things together from there. One, one question that I had that actually also comes from Dennis is, you know, you, you've mentioned you train a bunch of different martial arts and offer martial yeah. arts at your academy. What do you think the ones are the most complementary for Brazilian jiu-jitsu? So there's basically, you know, if you look at the ranges of, of fighting or combat, whatever, it's typically four. Some people say five, but basically kicking, punching, you know, the, the clinch, the, the trapping range, and then the grappling. So I think... Catch wrestling is a really great compliment or any kind of wrestling um, because it will emphasize a little more in the takedowns and riding the person in pressure. Um, 
And then I personally think as long as you have a stand-up art and a comp- that's complimentary and another grappling art that could be complimentary, it's going to be really difficult. You're going to be difficult for people that have a singular style. Um, but the essence of the, of the arts are different. So, you know, wrestling and catch wrestling is much more imposing your will. And uh, jiu-jitsu is more about influencing the person's behavior and suffocating their movement and then letting them fall into a trap. So I think wrestling, catch wrestling, anything like uh, shooto, uh, sambo, any of those are really good. Judo especially, or any kind of, um, even a, like a Japanese jiu-jitsu that has like, that's more judo-like. Um, so there's a few styles out of the eight that, or eight or ten that I think are really beneficial. And then from stand-up, I personally like the Filipino martial arts or Muay Thai. And um, if you have jiu-jitsu that has stand-up in it, like say, you know, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu that has stand-up, clinch, and throws, punches, strikes, and defense, you should, you know, that's going to complement it. But I think you could really tighten it up with some Muay Thai or um, some Filipino martial arts. The boxing part of it is called Panatukan. And uh, it's a really great complement. So the clinch in Muay Thai is something that I think more grapplers could really benefit from too. And, uh, you know, we had Greg Nelson out here and, uh, not that long ago. And it's just amazing, you know, the little details that you pick up. And if you can control someone standing to the clinch, it's a lot easier to take them down and land in a good position as opposed to, you know, um, like I think everybody in jiu-jitsu should know some kind of takedowns or throws. And I don't really care where they come from, but they should be practical and uh, effective. So that's what I would do. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. So you know how we talk a lot about the difference between self-defense and competition? We do. I was thinking the other day about how submission-only tournaments are kind of the perfect marriage of those two things, right? You're getting to practice competitive skills, but you have to be able to do what you do in a self-defense situation, which is end the encounter. And I know you have an amazing story about... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what happens when sport grappling is not paired with those uh, finishing skills? Most definitely. You have to be able to survive the encounter and be able to end it. And we had a guy at our academy who had learned Barambolo way too early. So he could take your back at a pretty advanced level but didn't really know any submissions. And he goes into a submission-only tournament at U.S. Grappling, ends up Baramboloing the other guy who was a wrestler who also was pretty new and also didn't know any submissions. And so this dude Barambolos this guy over and over. So they're rolling around the mat. Barambolo, Barambolo. Bolo takes his back, can't finish, other guy escapes. Baron Bolo take the back, can't finish, other guy escapes. After about 45 minutes of this, our guy ends up having to tap because the other guy shoves his sweaty gi in his mouth, and a sweaty gi in your mouth will make you tap after 45 minutes sometimes. <laughs> I'm totally imagining this like a cartoon fight of a cat and dog where there's just a spinning cloud of dust. <laughs> it's like that, but with more sweat and pajamas. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think if you are ready to do a submission-only tournament sometime, first, make sure you know how to end your match. And second, sign up for the next U.S. Grappling. Which is June 30th in Columbia, South Carolina, if you want to do submission-only, or you have opportunities to compete April 28th in Richmond, Virginia, and May 5th in Greensboro, North Carolina, for points tournaments. Our favorite tournament organization is U.S. Grappling. Be sure to support those that support us, and thanks for listening. Yeah, you know, I always tell people if 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 time and resources were infinite, we should all train everything, right? Because yeah, you want to be yeah, as well-rounded as possible. But in the real world, we unfortunately have to make choices. And so I think that you've given us some good advice about how to direct those choices. One other thing Dennis yeah. Wiseman wanted me to ask you about was your homeschool classes. Uh, can you talk about those a little bit, how those got started? Yeah, you know, it's usually just through conversations. And, um, boy, let me tell you, it's one of the best things we ever did as a school owner um, I was talking to some of the parents, and and my wife had some friends, and they were talking about homeschool, and I was like, homeschool? So I just sat quietly, and I listened. And usually when I meet someone for the first couple times, I'm quiet, I'm more observant, I just kind of take things in. And um, I, I, they were talking about homeschool, and I was, I did, it just piqued my interest. And um, then one of the parents was like, you know, you should teach, do you teach classes during the day for homeschool kids? And I... You know when you have that quiet epiphany and realization where you're like, huh, 
I don't understand how I didn't know to think about that. And so I asked, you know, how does it work? How do the people network usually? And they're very good at networking as a whole. And um, But it's a very tight knit network. And so um, I did a couple of seminars. I just put free self-defense for homeschool kids and families. And the first one, I had like 10 people show up. I was like, well, okay. The second one, I had like 70 people show up. And then we got a couple of students. And then through word of mouth, it slowly grew. And now we have, you know, 20, 30 kids every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. for our homeschool class. And then immediately following that, uh, we have an adult jujitsu class. So the parents can bring their kids. The kids can train. The kids go in the lobby. They start doing their homework. And then the parents get a class. And then they go home or go back to work. And uh, it's what a, it's an amazing program. And now, out of all the seven academies here that I helped, you know, start their business and get everything established, um, all of them now, well, almost all of them except for one, have a homeschool class starting, and it's taken off. And uh, I didn't know until, you know, a couple of years ago that the homeschool population is finally now exceeded the private school population in North Carolina. So there's a huge opportunity for us to share jujitsu and have an impact that we never considered. That's fascinating. And and you had no idea that you know, you would get, you know, and you said you offered it free at first. You had no idea that all these folks would just show up. Yeah, I had no idea. So I said, well, you know what, why don't I do a seminar? And because if you look at the way, Kids are harassed, right? There's a, there's a few a few things. Most, mostly it's social and at work and at school, rather. And um, But the way that children are, t- like, taken is or abducted or when people try to kidnap them or assault them, there's only a few things through that research shows that people try to do. So we said, okay, well, let's make sure. You, I just put a video in there and said, hey, if you can drag your child across the living room, tell them to try not try. Really tell them, don't let me do this. And if you can drag them across the living room, you need to come to this class. And, of course, it just exploded. And I posted it in, in our neighborhood, in our community, and then people picked it up and shared it. And um, it was just, you know, a, a two-hour seminar. Um, the first one had, like, 10 people. The second one had about 70. And it just blew up. And they were like, this is amazing. I didn't even know what jiu-jitsu was. And so we just started getting students from there. And um, now we market it as a separate demographic, but the word of mouth is still the most powerful marketing tool there is. And now we have a, a thriving program. And I mean, that's really all we did is you can't think, okay, I'm going to try something once or twice. I mean, you got to try it many more times than that because ask yourself how many times you've driven past a business in your own town. And you're like, I never knew that was there. And you've lived there for five years. And that happens to our academies. So when you persist at it and it slowly starts to grow, to grow, then one day it'll just bloom. It'll just explode. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, this place is – class is full. And um, and that's it. So, you know, you have to constantly market your programs too and get it, let people know about it and then they'll come. So you mentioned you've mentioned a couple of things that that surprised you as a business owner and an instructor, and I'm wondering, drawing on your your business consultant background, but also your experience running your academy, what do you wish you knew when you first started your academy that you know now, and that you you would want somebody who's starting an academy today to know? Okay, and you know, so that's a, I'm glad you asked that. And looking back, it's easy to say what you should have done. Um, moving into it, I'm very grateful that it came up through a service industry and I understood service culture and processes and how things are delivered and what the experience should be. Um, but when you open an academy, don't plan on making any money for at least a couple of years. Um, you know, you have got to really love jujitsu in order to do it. Um, you do not. And I want to make this like, I don't know how I can make it any clearer. You do not need to be a black belt to be a good instructor. You need to be a good instructor to be a good instructor. And if you're a black belt, that's a good instructor. That's a bonus. Um, I've seen many people with lower belts that teach better than people with higher belts. And I mean, there's just, there's so many examples. So if you're thinking about starting an academy, don't feel like you have to be a black belt to open one. And I know that some people will think very differently uh, than I do on that. And that's okay, because we can agree to disagree and we'll still go to lunch and train and have a great time. But 
the most important thing when you start a, an academy is your academy culture. And if the culture is right, operations are easy. If you focus on operations and not the culture, you're not going to be in business for very long. And so uh, I wish I knew that it was going to take a little bit longer to get established and that uh, I got organized a little bit sooner because when I first started, I don't know anyone that had a curriculum really until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And people like, you know what? And it came from a conversation of a parent. What does my child need to learn to get a yellow belt? It's like, well, hmm, let me think. That should never happen. It also, um, I know when they'll be ready. That should never happen, in my opinion. I've got 100 students. How do I know what every single student needs? You know, I'm only there at my own academy three, four days a week, and it's open six days a week. So I have to have trust in people. And if you open an academy, you have to trust people. If you micromanage, you're not going to succeed. So you have to get the culture of the instructors, the culture of the students, and the whole vibe. And most people, they really overlook that. Then get organized, get structure, get processes, have a curriculum. And, you know, if you don't want a curriculum after blue belt, that's fine. That's totally, you know, whatever you want. But at least for the first one or two belts, people need to know exactly uh, what is expected of them until they assimilate into the jujitsu culture. And then they understand, you know what, as long as I have good fundamentals, after that, it's my expression as an individual. And um, so those are simple things. And then from a business acumen, I think you should really understand how a business works, like what your potential income is, what your net income is. Um, you're going to have to, you know, sign a lease. You're going to have to pay maintenance. It's very expensive to rent a facility commercially compared to residentially. So you just got to be prepared and listen to a lot of people that know. Um, but here's the thing. I, I got this saying from my grandmother, as you know, all four, four foot 11 of her. And uh, she said, don't ever take money advice from someone that's broke. And it, while it's so simple, I was like, that is really simple but profound advice. Like if you've never run a business, why would you take business advice from yourself? Go seek out someone that knows better. If you've, never done jujitsu, why would you take advice from yourself? It's the same thing. You would go seek out someone that really knows what they're doing. So when you open an academy, there's a lot of people that want you to succeed. And very often, even your competitors want you to. The best thing that happened to, you know, to jujitsu in my area is that there's other academies. And um, because now you have an opportunity to, to be distinct and stand out and people have options. And when jujitsu as a whole grows, then everybody benefits. So um, I think I, I wish I knew that. And then, you know, just the simple marketing and advertising, but it's all a process. And, and you know, I'm still learning as we go too. Um, and I, I tell people, even as a consultant, I don't know everything. I try to, um, I don't act like I know everything, but I do know a little bit about running a business and I know a little bit about martial arts and I've done both for half my life. Um, but like you, when we work together, we're probably both going to learn. And if you're open to that, I can guarantee we're going to get some results. And, and so, I mean, that would be my advice. I know that's a lot, but um, I would start with that. Culture, organization, operations will fall into place. All of that makes perfect sense, especially the fact that uh, when jujitsu as a whole grows, everybody benefits. So yeah. in the two or three minutes we have left, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about or anything that you would just really want people to know about you, your academy, or, or, or your team? Um, you know, I mean, you know, of course, and I say this all the time, but if you're ever in the area and you have a good attitude, you're welcome to train with us. I think it's important, too, if people visit your academy, that you should never try to recruit them. Just let them come in, have a good time, train. Um, you know, I, I think that's really it. I'm, I'm just very fortunate. I consider myself very blessed to be part of the team. The resources that we have are just amazing. And, you know, it, it, the thing is, like, make sure whenever you get a chance or an opportunity to introduce someone to Jiu-Jitsu that – you do it in a very positive way. And um, because there's a there's the technical part of jiu-jitsu, there's the social part of jiu-jitsu, and I think the better that we represent all of it, you know, uh, is important. And I would like to say one little thing, too. Please, 
keep drama out of the dojo. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Um, I don't like politics. I don't get involved in politics. Um, but please don't get caught up in that because it stifles the growth. And um, I know people have a tendency, it's very natural to, to huddle up and talk or to talk in huddles. But um, it's interesting, too. You know, you can just watch people talk and interact, and you can basically tell. Um, but, you know, I think as instructors, especially if, you're, if you want to teach and you're listening to this, the best thing that you can do is invest in your mind, your behavior, your habits, and your jujitsu. Because when you invest in your mind and your behavior, your life, all of your life around you gets a lot easier. And it doesn't have to be so difficult. And when you really start... Um, and you've heard this saying when you're comfortable being uncomfortable, but the idea is like as an instructor and an owner, I think you should be able to go train in anything you want. I think you should be able to visit any place that you want. And we have got to get over that drama um, and that kind of safeguarding gatekeeper mentality. It's, um, you know, when you encourage people to learn from others too, they have more respect for you when you tell them, instead of telling them that they shouldn't learn from someone else. Now, with that said, I will say there are places that I recommend my students go, and there are places that I just let them know, hey, listen, this school, at this school, they're going to be a little more serious about this. This My friend owns the academy, and if you want to, you want to get at it and put in some hard work, this is a place to go. If you want to go and just have a good time, let them know. And I'm always, And it's not that I'm trying to dictate where they go. I am very concerned as an instructor for the safety of my students. And um, I don't ever want an, a, a student to go out with good intentions because they came from a good culture and they get into a bad culture and then they come back with an injury. So um, Master Sauer said it, you know, and I love the saying, he said, you get one set of joints on your body. You should really try to protect them so you can have them work good for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, that's about it. I, I don't really like to talk about myself too much, but, um, you know, I, that's it. So I, I appreciate the questions and the opportunity to be on the show. And if anybody ever has questions, they can message me or find me on Facebook or, you know, um, I'm always open to talking to people. Uh, and if they have a business or they want to be instructors to give them, you know, honest advice, that's encouraging. And uh, that's about it. So I think... The only thing I could ask everyone listening to this is to help us together collectively as a whole and you as an, an, indivi as an individual to keep sharing jujitsu in a very positive way because I can see it firsthand in my community, the ripple effect that it has on the, the generations and the social circles of kids because fewer and fewer kids come to me and they're getting picked on and they're getting bullied. And, um, now the kids that train, they're excited to tell me that they got bullied because they want to explain how they handled it, and they handled it really well. So um, the same thing with adults, too. Just, you know, take it easy, let them assimilate into the jiu-jitsu culture, and then they're going to know what it's like, and it's easier to get everyone to compete or if they want to. Um, it's easier to get people to invite friends because they feel safe and they've been there for a while. So you know, that would be it, but it's been a pleasure to be on your show, and I appreciate your time. So that's our show for the week. Next week, we'll have Wes Claytor from Gracie Raleigh on to talk about his involvement with Tap Cancer Out, and maybe we'll walk through the U.S. grappling match where Wes housed me a couple of weeks back. That'll be big fun for everybody. My name's Jeff Shaw. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. You can check us out online at dirtywhitebelt.com or elsewhere on the Internet. I want to thank you all for listening, and thanks for hanging with us during this transition. We'll see you next Sunday.